In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. My guest today is Howard Dean. Dean has an impressive list of former titles, former governor of Vermont, former chair of the Democratic National Committee, and former candidate for the Democratic presidential primary in 2004. And currently, he is still opinionated about what the Democrats need to do at this pivotal time. Dean's faith in people's fundamental decency is shaped in part by his years in Vermont politics. Though originally a New Yorker, Dean has lived in Vermont most of his adult life, and he was a family physician before becoming governor. When you look at a map of the states where COVID rates have been soaring, Vermont seems to be faring better than other places like New York City and L.A. I wanted to know if it's simply because Vermont is rural. Yeah. I mean, from a density point of view, it makes a difference. We also happen to have a Republican governor who has a brain and who cares what the facts are, which is nice. He actually confessed to having voted for Biden after the election was over. <laughs> I like him. Well, there's there's Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker. I mean, there are some reasonable Republicans still. But Vermont's been very successful. Now, look, we're having a surge, too. And we're having problems and we got to, you know, buckle down. But we're a community that cares about each other. We actually sit down and have discussions about debate issues. I never hated the Republicans. When I was governor, we used to sit down and work stuff out. I had as much friction with the Democrats as I did with the Republicans. This is a reasonable place where people actually care about their neighbors and believe you're supposed to respect your neighbors. Now, we were just joking before you came on. We were like, could Howard Dean be the president now in the interim, just till the COVID's over, then Biden could take over? Could we have a medical doctor <laughs> who's president for an interim period of time? But uh, you know, what, what, from your estimate as a physician, where did we primarily get it wrong here in terms of the way we handle the COVID? Well, Trump has been a disaster because Trump cares about Trump and his press and not any functional thing. I mean, he's basically gutted all the health agencies by putting lackeys in there who are afraid afraid of him. So he, he ruined the good name of the CDC and, and, and the FDA and, you know, calling up the FDA, president, head of the FDA and threatening him, if you don't get this thing out in the next 24 hours, you should resign. I mean, you know, that's not medicine. That's just nonsense. Uh, and that's where the way it's always been. The big problem is, and Trump has more or less created the, uh, I'm not wearing a mask because that's my political affiliation, which is just stupidity. So yeah, we'd be better off. The tr The problem is, uh, I mean, if you look at other countries, they are better off, a lot better off than we are. Almost all of them, not all of them. Brazil is in bad shape. Russia is in bad shape. But but most of the countries in this world are much doing a much better job than we are. And that that's right at the feet of Trump and the Republican Party, which never dared to confront them. And locking down was the answer? Locking down, unfortunately, is some of the answer. And I think it was handled actually fairly well. We got behind in New York, and that's understandable because we didn't know what was coming. We didn't understand what was happening. They pulled themselves together. The stuff that's going on in the Midwest is ridiculous. That was a whole bunch of Republican governors that basically said, oh, we don't need to wear a mask. Well, now people are dying, dropping down like flies, and their ICUs are all full. The danger of the ICUs being filled is twofold. One is a terrible indicator of how sick everybody is. But the other is that if you have a heart attack, guess who doesn't get an ICU bed? or even medical attention. So the Midwestern states, because of their mostly their own stupidity of their governors, are in bad shape. And I think we're going to get our arms around this again. I think the vaccine is going to be enormously helpful. But we've got six months of really tough stuff in front of us where they're, I mean, I'm 72 years old. I'm going to have to be really careful for the next six months. 
Now, when the vaccine comes, people get a vaccine, then they have to have a second one like a month later, is that it? Yeah, right. And and you think that uh, how soon, if I get the vaccine, this is something I wanted to clarify for people listening to the show. Let's say I got a vaccine the first week of January, and then a month later I have to get another vaccine, but I still have to distance from people and wear masks? Yes, you really should. The, the truth is you'll probably have some minimal amount of partial immunity, which will vary greatly from individual to individual, which is why the numbers of the, on the second vaccine really matter. This is a peculiar virus, which we have very little experience with heretofore. I mean, there have been some, you know, the SARS epidemic, which was very small compared to this, which we did not have a lot of success with the vaccine, but it wasn't nearly as contagious as this. And I might add the fatality rate was much higher than this one is. So thank God it didn't have the contagion rate. This is very, very contagious. And it's an odd virus that which human beings have very little uh, experience with. So that's most likely, and I'm not a researcher, but that's most likely the reason for the two vaccines. My guess is that there's some immunity after the first shot. You really got to get the second one. This is not something you want to fool with. And then after the second shot, you still have to distance and mask and keep, or are you free to just move about and you're safe? I would distance and mask. I wouldn't think I was free until we get to herd immunity. And that's about 70% vaccinated. Right or having had the disease. We know that most people are immune after they get the disease. The problem is we don't know how, how, for how long. Mm -hmm. It could be only three months. Mm -hmm. We don't know how long this vaccine's gonna last. You know, the flu vaccine you have to take every year. And you have to take it every year for two reasons. One, we don't know how immune you are. And two, the flu virus, which is a different, wholly different family of viruses, mutates like crazy very quickly. So you may get an entirely different flu virus coming the next year. That's why you get flu shots. Uh, every year. Uh, this we don't know that much about. We do know there's been one mutation. Interestingly enough, despite Trump's chatter about China and all this, the virus that most Americans have is actually a European mutation. I didn't know that. And most of the virus in New York actually came from Europe, not from China, because it was a, we could trace it to a, a European set of European travelers that actually came back from Westchester County from a conference. And that was the first case in New York. So most of the virus in this country, it's the European variant. Now, your father was a Wall Street guy? My father was a Wall Street guy. The thing about my parents is uh, that makes them different is, yes, we have a house in East Hampton. We actually grew up here. I didn't go to junior activities at the Maidstone Club. I went to the East Hampton Boys Club. Really? And met everybody. My father, yes, he played golf all summer with the summer people. And then he shot coot and duck all winter with the local guys. Right. We went to a church that had a lot of local people on the vestry. It wasn't, uh, you know, the hoity-toity, whatever. Right. So we really, although I went to school in New York City, uh, this uh, the only places I've ever voted are East Hampton, New York, and Vermont. Mm -hmm. And when the time came for you to go to school, and your father was a business guy, and, and you decided to go to medical school, what prompted you to do that? Why? Uh, how do I say this nicely? I worked on Wall Street for a year and a half, and I hated it. <laughs> I did. It wasn't for you. Well, I was in college during Vietnam, where presidents of both parties lied through their teeth about the war, and 55,000 Americans were killed, not to mention millions of Southeast Asians. And I'd given up on everything. I went to ski bummed in Aspen and poured concrete and washed dishes for a year, decided that was not something I was going to be happy with. And then I uh, went to work on Wall Street. It was a path of least resistance. I learned a great deal, but I learned I didn't want to live in New York, and I didn't want to work on, you know, make my living pushing other people's money around. And so I decided to go to medical school because uh, a friend of mine had gone and to do a post back. I didn't, you know, this was the 60s. There were no requirements in college. So I hadn't taken a single math or, a, or science course while I was in college, but I was good at it in high school. So I went, I loved it. And I went to Albert Einstein College of Medicine. I was a token goyim at the, at the Jewish <laughs> medical school. It was great. I learned a lot and met my wife. So what, could, what more could go wrong, right? <laughs> and was Vermont something that was a, a place you visited, summered, skied? Some, if you're going to do the East Coast skiing, at least. How did Vermont come into your life? Uh, there was a family that uh, sort of became my second family when I was in college. And I used to spend a lot of time in Bonville, Vermont, which is a tiny little town near Stratton. I did ski a lot, but I came to Vermont by chance. Uh, when you leave medical school, you list your top 10 choices as internships. Vermont was my fourth. And I had three high-powered academic medical centers uh, that I had applied to. Uh, I ironically, two were in New York and one was in Washington, D.C., and I didn't get any of them. So I got my fourth choice. The computer matches it. It's called The Match, and it's a big deal when you get out of medical school. 
So I, the match assigned me to Vermont. And if, if it hadn't done that, then you never would have heard of me. When did you start to become more hyper aware of what was going on? And you knew you had a passion for public affairs when you were how old? Well, I thought I had a public passion for public affairs when I was in high school and I was elected to the student council sort of by accident. Mm -hmm. And then I got disgusted with all the stuff in Vietnam and the civil rights movement by the reaction of my own government. It didn't matter which party it was. There were pox on both of them. Uh, Then Watergate happened and the Democrats took a turn left and for better government. Uh, and try to get the corruption out of the government, which they did to a large extent. Now it's all returned thanks to the right-wing Supreme Court. But I got interested in po- reinterested in politics because I always thought that the, the way the Democrats could rehab themselves was to get a Southerner to run. And when Jimmy Carter ran for president, I signed on. And that's what got me into politics. To campaign. Yeah, I signed up just as an envelope licker and a phone call maker. And then I was mentored by two women who were 25 years older than I, who were sisters, and one of whom was, they both actually had played a very active role in reconstituting the Democratic Party in Vermont. Vermont did not have a Democratic governor for 109 consecutive years between 1853 and 1968. So these two women had put the thing together and they mentored me and because and, I worked my butt off for Carter. And I went to the convention and that was this, and then I became the chair of the county, and that's worked my way up. What office did you hold prior to being governor? I was lieutenant governor for five years, and then before that, I was in the state house for two terms. When you have a political passion from when you're, you know, during the 60s and Watergate and Vietnam and so forth, and then you decide to run, what is it that makes you decide to give up practicing medicine to run for politics? Well, I didn't. Everything is part-time up there, right, right, right. lieutenant governor. So I was practicing medicine until... August 14th, 1991, and I was seeing a patient and the nurse knocks on the door and says, excuse me, I have to interrupt you. The governor's office is on the line. I took the call in this quavering voice and the other end of the phone says, I regret to inform you that the governor has died of a heart attack and you're the governor. <laughs> that was the end of my medical practice. Oh my God. So that's how I decided. I, I, I actually decided not to leave medicine because it was sort of my turn to run for governor. There were two other people that wanted it. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to get into a primary. I'm going to have to close my practice for five months. And I'm not going to have a practice to come back to if I don't win. So I decided to run for a third term, which is, again, lieutenant governor in Vermont's a part-time job. And the the, the governorship, it's a four-year term? Two years. The governor's two years in Vermont. It's two years, and I love it that way. People keep wanting to change it. That is laziness on the part of the public who doesn't want to hear all those stupid ads. I don't blame them. And it's laziness on the part of the politicians who don't want to face the public. Donald Trump is a good reason not to have four-year terms. You can get rid of me anytime you want in two years, and it's happened lots of times. So I'm a big fan of two-year terms. Now, it may be impractical in a place like New York, which is so big, but in the smaller states, I believe you actually get more done faster with two-year terms because you're accountable every minute. How far into his term was the governor when he died? Well, he'd been governor for four terms before that, and then he'd gone and then he'd come back, and he was eight months into his term. So he was eight months, and when you are in that state... Do they have to have a special election to have another? No, no, no. You I serve out the term. Yeah, but that's another advantage of, of you don't get, you know, people who weren't really elected to serve for the majority. So I faced the voters, um, you know, 16 months later or whatever. And then I was elected to five terms on my own. So you finish his term and then what happens? By the time you finish his first term, you decide you like it and you want to stay. Yeah. Well, I was really interested in healthcare. It was interesting, Alec. After a week of, you know, drinking water out of a fire hose and being briefed, because, you know, I knew nothing about nothing. And now I've got to worry about the banks. And it was during the one of the recessions. And I've got a zillion things. Everybody's got to come and tell me what they're doing and how the government works. And so I'm going through all this and I don't have a moment to myself. And the state's in shock because this giant political figure has suddenly dropped dead at the age of 63. And about two weeks in, I had a couple of hours to myself in my office by myself. And I thought, wow you never expected this. What do you really want to do? So I wrote down five things that I thought were really important. The top was universal health care. And Jim Hunt, who was governor of uh, North Carolina for 16 years, he took me aside one time and he said, he looked me in the eye and he said, uh, you know, 90% of what we do is urgent. Uh, And I looked at him and I nodded and he said, and 10% is important. I never forgot that. So every day before, while I was in the office, I never left when, on the days I was in the office without pulling out my drawer and looking at the five things I put down in that day two weeks into my unexpected term to make sure I'd done at least one thing that furthered one of those 
causes. Because every day in your life, no matter what job you have, the urgent always overcomes the important. And you get to the end of your life and you haven't done the things that are important because you focused on the urgent things all the time. I teach a lot now and I advocate to my students, write that list down. Because even at your age, there's stuff you think is important and stuff you think is urgent. And you got to be able to tell the difference. And the, and the important stuff's going to change as you grow older. But if you don't do that, you're going to spend all your time in the urgent and none of the stuff that's important. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. If you like conversations about politics, check out our archives for more in-depth conversations with interesting people like Good Morning America's George Stephanopoulos. When I left the White House in early 97, I was, I guess I was, what, 35, 36 then. I felt much older. <laughs> and I knew— Do you know why? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, White House years are dog years multiplied. Hear more of my conversation with George Stephanopoulos at heresthething.org. After the break, I talk to Howard Dean about what he thinks Biden needs to tackle first. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com FITS. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. I wanted to hear what Howard Dean makes of Joe Biden's plans so far. I'm very pleased with what Biden's doing. He's not my style. I think I wanted somebody who was about 40 because uh, I think it's, I'm desperate to turn all this over to a new generation. I think my generation's hung around too long. But I think Biden was a great candidate for, for what we needed. I actually thought Bernie was going to win. I think what happened was, first we had Trump, who was just chaos every day, he's reality television. And then we had COVID, which has scared the living daylights out of people. And I think people just thought, geez, I really like Bernie, and I think we really need change. But we're just going to get four more years of confrontation, uh, although Bernie is very different than Trump, because Bernie's honest and Trump isn't. But I think that that's when they decided they wanted Biden. And I think he was probably the best nominee we could have had. I think Biden's no nonsense, which is great. I like his cabinet appointments. He has got to focus on the, both the urgent and the important. The urgent is let's try to heal the country. Let's put competence back in government because there is almost none now. But the important is we really do have to have a universal health care program that works for every American. And it's ludicrous for the United States of America to be the only democracy in the, in the world that doesn't have a universal health care program. This is absurd. And he talked a little bit about some of the things. I personally believe that the way to do it is allow everybody to sign up for Medicare. We did this in my state, in Vermont, because at the top of the list, even in the state of Vermont, was universal health care for me. So my second year, we put in, get rid of all these uh, pre-existing conditions, 
you can't charge anybody more than 20% above what you charge your least expensive patient. And we had a huge Medicaid expansion, thanks to Bill Clinton, so that every child in my state for two generations has grown up with health insurance. Everybody under 18 is eligible for Medicaid, essentially, or unless they're over 300% of poverty. You can do that as a state. What you can't do is say, here, we're just going to do a single payer. Maybe single payer is the right thing to do, but the change is too fast. If Joe Lieberman hadn't changed his vote under Obamacare and gotten rid of the ability to sign up for Medicare, the so-called public option, I think three quarters of the people in this country would be on Medicare right now because Medicare is a much better program than the health insurance companies are. The people that are opposed to universal health care, is there any argument that they make that makes sense to you? No, none. I'm not. I, look, you can be opposed to government run health care. That's a reasonable argument. I don't happen to think that. I mean, I think Medicare does a better job than insurance companies do. But to say that you shouldn't have universal health care, that's the argument of people who have what they need and don't give a damn about anybody else. And I have no patience for that. I'm always curious if the COVID has proven anything, it's, it's how linked we are, you know, biologically. Why don't they recognize that it's in their interest as well for other people to be covered? You know something? Most people are not opposed to universal health care, including most Trump voters. The problem is what the Republicans do is basically win on the worst instincts of people. They cater to racism, homophobia. What they sell is hate. And that overcomes a lot of things. Uh, if you poll most Americans, they would really like a universal health care program. And that includes most of the Trump voters. You know, there's a guy from Georgia who's married to one of my favorite students. Um, and he, we were talking one day and he says, you know, uh, do you like Trump voters? And I had to think about it. And I said, yes, because most of them used to vote for me. These are working people. These are not, I mean, yes, you get the lunatics that are in the paper all the time. These are not horrible people. These are people who are working people. And, they, and Trump brings out the worst in them. But they're, most of them are hardworking people that don't have a lot of money. They understand that a universal health care program would be helpful. So what do the Republicans do? They crank up homophobia. They crank up racism. They invent uh, all these, these issues that are tangential. And they get them so emotionally invested Fear is what's driving them. Look, if you're a white guy in, in rural America and you lose your job when you're 50 years old, there's a pretty good chance you're never going to get another one. Now, black and brown people know that feeling very well. White folks have never felt that before. So they're scared to death. And that's what the Republicans sell is fear and hate. And I'm done with the Republicans. I think they're done as a party, too. I don't think you can survive. Either they're not going to survive or the country's not going to survive. You can't sell fear and hate and have that. Uh, be a leadership trait in a great country. When you ran for president, you had your 50-state strategy, correct? Yes, I did, but uh, it, the 50, it wasn't called that until I became chairman of the Democratic Party. Right, and what do you think, what worked for Obama, because Obama basically employed that, correct? Yeah, what worked for Obama is he took a lot of stuff. Look, I, I don't take credit for all the great stuff we did in my campaign. The truth is we had no money. We had a ton of, we had a very powerful message, and we had all the 23-year-olds in the country were for us, and they invented all this stuff. I had no idea what we were doing or what I was doing, as it turned out. These small donations. Well, it was the small donations, and it was um, it was the organization. It was Meetup. It was all these things on the net. I mean, they were my the kids that worked in my campaign was their first campaign, and they were incredible. They revolutionized campaigning. When I took over the Democratic Party after I didn't win the nomination— uh, I hired them. They had started a company called Blue State Digital and because we had to bring the whole party up to snuff on terms of social media and all that stuff. And then Obama hired them away from me in 2006. So Obama had two things besides being an incredibly charismatic candidate, which he was. He had two other things going for him. One, this had been tried for a campaign cycle and it was successful and the stuff that wasn't successful went fell by the wayside. And two, he had David Pluff. Obama himself is incredibly personally disciplined and so is Pluff. So all of a sudden you have all these kids who had no discipline at all because I didn't, was not terribly disciplined and Trippy certainly wasn't. Um, and all of a sudden these kids now have to report to somebody who's maybe a little old school, but who has, sees the big picture, which is Pluff. I truly believe that Pluff knew where every single Obama voter in the country was and finished, figured out with these kids how to get them all out. And there's, of course, a happy ending to this. After the Obama campaign, the, these kids sold Blue State Digital for $100 million. <laughs> how convenient. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, yeah, good for them. Now, but now, when you decide to run, I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I'm always curious about people who run for these 
statewide offices, you know, something big like governor or senator or the presidency, obviously, is the, is the big brass ring. When you run for that, um, does someone tell you you're ready or did you tell yourself you were ready or both? I'll tell you exactly how I knew. I'd been in the governorship longer than anybody else in the state and I'd served a long time and we'd done some pretty extraordinary things. Uh, universal health care. We did the equivalent of pre-K with something called success by six for zero to three kids and dropped child abuse down dramatically. And the most controversial thing I did was uh, sign the first marriage equality bill in the country. We had to call it civil unions. There's no way I could have gotten a marriage, a bill that said marriage out of the house, but we did it. And it essentially was marriage. And I had to wear a bulletproof vest for my last campaign. And I had to run in that campaign because if I hadn't uh, and quit after we passed it, then that essentially became a referendum on civil unions, which, you know, I, I didn't want to lose that. And I didn't. I won it by 123 votes. So I was done. There was no way I was going to get reelected to anything. And I just thought, what next? And we had two senators that had been there for a long time. And I wasn't I didn't really want to be in the Senate anyway. So what else is there? Politics. And that's what I did. And when you decided to run and you didn't win the nomination, whose idea was it for you to run the DNC? That was my idea and everybody else hated it. I didn't get a single <laughs> vote from inside the beltway. My vote, my, listen, it was a classic grassroots. I was elected by the states. And well, why do you think that is? Why did they vote for you and the insiders wouldn't? Because they were fed up with the inside the beltway people because the inside the beltway people don't know anything about campaigns. Look at them. They all end up running campaigns after the, they were successful 15 years before, and they're selling all this crap that was good 15 years ago and elected somebody, and it's no good anymore, and they're always getting, making a ton of money. When I got to the DNC, there was no data platform, not because Terry McAuliffe was an idiot, because he actually left me with a surplus, which is unheard of after a presidential campaign. It's because the Washington consultants sold him something that was totally inadequate. So I basically ran against the establishment, which I'd been doing uh, in my presidential campaign, and it was very successful. I didn't get any votes from inside the Beltway, and, and three quarters of the members are from the states, and that's where I got my votes. And then the last campaign, I ran a, a for-profit corporation called the Democratic Data Exchange. And the reason I was asked, I don't know anything about data, the reason I was asked to run it is because I could get along with both the insiders and the outsiders after, after the 50-state strategy gave us back the presidency, the Senate and the House, which we, none of which we possessed when I took over as chairman. And we had nothing. And by 2006, we'd had the House and the Senate. And by 2008, we had Obama as president and had a trifecta. Was there something you thought was going to happen when Obama won? Did you expect you would get invited to come into that administration? I was hoping I would. What job would you want? Probably HHS. I'd had a few words with a person who turned out to be the chief of staff. And I had a few words with Obama, too. I, I, you know, I, like I don't, I'm not famous for hiding my opinions. And I'm not a go-along-to-get-along guy. I'm a guy who says what they think, and I think you know we ought to do what we can. I, it's not that I'm not a team player. I am, right. but I'm not a team right. player to the extent that you have to lie to be a team player, and I don't play Washington games. Right. And, and this is the same true with Biden? Do you think if you were invited to come and join Biden's administration anyway, would you consider that? Well, I, don't, I won't be invited, and I don't feel bad about it. Um, I really, truly think that it's time for a lot of other new people to come mm -hmm. in. And he, Biden hasn't done all of that, but he's done some of it. Uh, he has a very diverse cabinet, which I think is absolutely critical. I mean, I am so pleased to see Janet Yellen as the head of the Treasury Department. I'm thrilled to see Gina McCarthy, who's been overlooked for a long time, going to be his chief climate change person. She really knows what she's doing. Tina Flanoy is going to be Kamala Harris's chief of staff. She is a real find. So I mean, he's got some really good people who are about to take over for him. And I, I think that's great. I, look, again, sure, it would be a fun job to have. I really think somebody who's 42 should have that job, not somebody who's 72. Mm -hmm. So when 2016 comes, Trump wins. Here you are. You ran for president. You ran the DNC. You've had a successful political career. What happened to Hillary Clinton in 2016? Hillary actually was incredibly helpful. So you have to know a little bit what, about what I've been doing relatively quietly. So uh, there was a woman named Judith McHale who used to run the Discovery Channel for 14 years. And another woman who's a big uh, organizer in Silicon Valley named Amy Rao. And Judith is very close to Hillary. She worked for her at the State Department. And we came up with this notion that instead of funding the traditional DNC, we ought to look at what this young generation is doing. And what the young generation is doing will not come as a surprise to you. They all have groups that does certain things. Some of them train people. Some of them recruit members of minority communities to run for office. Some of them only recruit local officials. All these things need to be done by the DNC. But this is a 
a generation that just doesn't trust institutions. So they start their own. Now there's some problems with this generation. One of them is I call it cooperation without commitment. So if they, if they have a startup and they disagree, instead of working it out, they go each start their own startup and say, nice to work with you, et cetera, et cetera. But what we did was to vet them. Uh, Judith would vet them from a business point of view. I'd vote to vet them from a political point of view because there's zillions of these institutions and try to pick best in class. Who could do tech best? Who could do local officials best? Who did Congress best? So we picked 11 institutions. Uh, one, Collective PAC, taught African-Americans how to raise money essentially from white people, which was very hard for them to do. Uh, another one was uh, run for something, uh, recruited uh, young people to run, especially for local offices, often members of minority and uh, communities and women, not exclusively. Uh, there was a training organization based in Chicago, Voto Latino. So there were 11 organizations that we picked that circumscribed the functions of the Democratic Committee. And Hillary helped us raise the money and, of course, raised most of it from her funders who had no understanding of what we were doing, but they loved Hillary. And we raised a hell of a lot of money. She raised a hell of a lot of money. And it went to Indivisible and Swing Left and all these really good organizations. And that's what Hillary did for two years. And then the second two years I spent doing Democratic data exchange, and she spent raising money for both these organizations and some other ones. So it's, this is not meant to supplant the DNC. This is meant to do things for the DNC that they can no longer do because the, a new generation has come forth and does everything differently in politics. Basically, it took the stuff that started in my campaign, started in Hillary's campaign in 2016, some of it, and is bringing it into the 21st century and then trying to get the DNC used to working with all these groups, which they have to a pretty good extent, as allowed by what's left of campaign finance reform. You think she ran a good campaign in 2016? No, I don't think she ran a particularly good campaign, but she did a hell of a lot for people since that time to help uh, Biden win right. and, and to reconstitute the Democratic Party. Do you think that the uh, Electoral College should be eliminated? Yes. You do? Plain and simple, yes. And I also, also think we ought to have uh, ranked choice voting. You do? Yeah. We had it in Burlington for a while until one of the Republican candidates claimed that his rival got in because of that, and the rival turned out to be crooked. It was a progressive at the time. And so it, we got took it off the ballot. We're probably going to put it on now. But I'll tell you why. It does two things. First of all, you don't have to have a runoff. You get people again, you give people choices. I felt good about the mayor's race that I voted in in Burlington because my fourth choice won, but I'd voted for that person. The other thing, if it's ranked choice voting, let's just say you and I are running, I need your second place choices. So I'm not going to spend a lot of money running around telling everybody what a jerk you are, because if I do, all your second place people are going to put me last, or your choice people are going to put me last. Interesting. It's not perfect, but you run much more civilized campaigns and decent campaigns if you have ranked choice voting, then you do it in this winner-take-all minority. You know, you can win with 36% or 40% of the vote. So I, I, those are the two big reforms, I think, we need is ranked choice voting and getting rid of the Electoral College. What do you think the odds are? Well, depends how you do it. There's a bill called National Popular Vote, which is passed in states controlling about 190 votes. If they get to 270, the Electoral College is essentially gone unless the court Supreme Court, which, of course, is a function, essentially an offshoot of the Republican Party these days. What it does, Vermont's passed it, New York's passed it, is say, if uh, somebody wins the popular vote in the country, that's where your electoral votes go. And it takes place when enough states to add to 270 have passed this ballot. Former chair of the Democratic National Committee, Howard Dean, if you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, I talk to Howard Dean about one of the most urgent issues for the future of our democracy, campaign finance reform. After the break... Look, staying healthy isn't easy. Watching your diet, hitting the gym, avoiding stress. But a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed is the only bed that effortlessly adjusts in response to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. 
During our lowest prices of the season, the new Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed is only $8.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Simply by Frito-Lay. These days, you have a lot going on. But now, thanks to Simply by Frito-Lay, you have one less thing to worry about. So kick back and enjoy your favorite Frito-Lay snacks with ingredients to feel good about, like Simply Blue Corn Tostitos, Sea Salted Ruffles, and even White Cheddar Cheetos Puffs, all made with no artificial colors or flavors. Enjoy what you love and look for Simply Brand snacks online or at a store near you. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. My guest today is Howard Dean, Given the deep political divisions in this country, I wanted to know what Dean thinks about the struggle Republicans will face regarding the future of their party after Donald Trump. There are a lot of fairly decent people who have been voting Republican for a long time who couldn't bring themselves to vote for Trump. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are still a lot of decent Republicans. The problem is none of them are in the Senate, with the possible exception of Mitt Romney. Mm -hmm. There are people I like in the Republican Party in the Senate, um, but I don't respect them because I don't think they have a spine between them. I like Bob Corker a lot and Trump deep six, Tim, and that's why they're so terrified. The Republican Party, this happens to all politicians, and the Democrats are not exempt from this. They care more about their job than they do about the country. And that's a big problem. You shouldn't be in politics. You know, I, I'm actually for going back to the way the original Congress was, is, which is the way the legislature is in Vermont. It's, this is not a full-time job. Yeah. You better have another employment. And I'm for term limits in Congress, not because I like term limits, but because when you have the degree of corruption that is going on in the Republican Party, although I'm sure it's going on in the, in the Democratic Party in the past, you know, we're not immune from this kind of stuff then it's time to f- try to fix that corruption. The corruption is unbelievable, partly because of Citizens United, which is the most dangerous decision that was made since Dred Scott. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court is totally corrupted. Billions of dollars of uh, dark money going to the Federalist Society, who then serves up the highest percentage of people rated unqualified by the American Bar Association mm-hmm. ever to be seated in the courts. This country is in a lot more trouble than just Donald Trump. And we've created this mess ourselves uh, and yes, I believe the Republicans are more responsible for the de- than the Democrats are, but the Democrats need to get their act together. And we need desperately need a generational change. Uh, and we need less politics. And I, the way I think you get less politics is don't make this a full-time job. You know, pay people decently, but, you know, you got to have another job. I mean, campaign finance reform has been my number one issue. And it's what's, if you're a proponent of campaign finance reform. If you're sworn to that cause, it's a, it's a lonely task because it's the least sexy issue you could possibly be working on. Right. But it's the most critical one for the country. It's the linchpin of all the problems in this country. Yep. It sure is. When you reference term limits, I mean, someone said to me, well, I mean, o- o- always that conversation, people would say, well, elections themselves are term limits. I said, no, 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 no. Fair elections are like term limits. Right. I said, right now, incumbency is such a daunting power we need term limits because campaigns are not fair because we don't have. I mean, and I was working with people on the Nine Sundays program and uh, Marvin Kalb or his brother Bernard Kalb at the Shorenstein School at Harvard, and then talking about having not ceilings of spending, but floors. So if you're in a statewide race and media saturation for that state, for Senate governor, we exempt lieutenant governor because that's more ceremonial in a lot of states. We exempt comptroller uh, and AG. But you say the two Senate races and the gubernatorial race, uh, what is media saturation? Saturation in that state, if it's $30 million for you to penetrate the entire media platform in New York, you got to make sure each candidate has $30 million. Now, you could oppose me and you could spend 80. You could spend what Bloomberg, you could spend 100. But as long as I have 30, I have a base of what equals saturation. We're good to go. I completely believe in public financing of campaigns, completely. Well, you know what? So do a lot of voters. Uh, this is interesting. In Arizona, they actually passed this by. And Arizona was a pretty conservative state. This is the first time it went to go on Democratic for quite a while, I think, since Bill Clinton in 92. 
So Arizona, they had they passed public financing campaigns by referendum. They had two governors, both of whom I think served two terms. I'm not sure. Janet Napolitano and the Republican governor. I forgot which one it was who won under that system. And the Chamber of Commerce and the labor unions got together and tried to overthrow it because these are two big influence groups, one from each side. And they spent a lot of money on a referendum to get rid of it. And they lost because the public likes public financing because it gets the corruption out of politics. And there was a complicated system because of the free speech component, as you described. So you can't actually spend more, but everybody has a minimum amount that they can get. And it worked fine until John Roberts came along. And then Citizens United passed, and then that was thrown out. Well, like they said, the problem is if if someone can spend uh, an unlimited amount of money to run for office, if cash is speech, the line was, then the person with the most cash speaks the loudest. And that's the problem of this country is that the things that Citizen United are protecting are, you know, rich, male-oriented, Christian-oriented, Wall Street-oriented. Everything that happens in this country now, to me, that's significant is about stimulating the Dow. It doesn't get passed in Washington unless it stimulates the Dow. And that's that's the problem. Well, yeah, I mean, that's true. The idea that corporations are people and have the same free speech rights is disgraceful. And this is put on by supposedly serious jurists. And who do you think gives money to the Federalist Society? Rich people who who are really conservative and big corporations, and they don't have to declare where the money is coming from. That is the classic uh, Jane Mayer definition of dark money. So, you know, capitalism, which I happen to believe in, because I think it fits our sort of species well. It it helps to be greedy, which we are as a species, and it helps us to be altruistic. But capitalism is in trouble, not because it's a terrible system, it's because it's at the extreme end of where it should be. We need better regulation so that everybody can benefit. It doesn't matter what system you have, whether it's socialism or communism or capitalism, every system fails if you don't have a moderate, reasonable place in the middle where it can work. And capitalism is not there now. John Roberts bears much of the responsibility for that. Well, we need capitalism with regulations. We need capitalism with some teeth, some regulatory teeth. You're right. People need to pay more taxes. Corporations need to pay more taxes. But we want people to be competitive. It's the political aspect of the fact that money is speech that kills this. Because as long as my vote was just as important as the chairman of General Motors, That was great. But the truth is the chairman of General Motors can write a million dollar check to some dark money organization. And my vote doesn't make any difference if you do that. And that's where we are today. And we can't be there. If we want to survive as a country, we may not. There's no guarantee that America survives or any other country survives. It's up to us. And we're going to have to be much more serious about how seriously we take government. That, that to me, is the most important lesson of the Trump administration was how close we came to this country actually perishing. We're not done yet. Look, Trump is the, you know, was the worst of the worst and all this stuff, but the hard work has not been done. And it wasn't done by the Democrats either. And, it, and we had a chance to do it and we didn't do it. So, yes, Trump is a despicable person. I think he's the symptom, not the cause. It's assumed that, you know, Biden is up there. He's older and uh, he's about to begin a four year term in one of the most grueling jobs known to man. And uh, whether he is willing, uh, whether he's able to seek a second term after that is uh, to be revealed. But at the same time, he has a young woman who is the vice president-elect. And and I'm wondering, when you're in that position, and there's as much of a chance with him as anyone that he won't seek a second term, he might not be willing to do that when he's 82 years old, four years from now, do you think that everybody is assiduously grooming her to run for that job? Well, I'm sure sure she's assiduously grooming herself, but that doesn't... (laughs) Look, I mean, that's not a guarantee of anything. I guarantee you that if Joe doesn't run for a second term, there'll be a primary. Yeah. And Kamala Harris will have the advantage in that primary. Everybody will know who she is. But people are going to come after her. But look, the second term of a president is a referendum on the president. That's why Biden was such a great candidate this time, because he was pretty non-controversial. And this was all about Trump. And if it was going to be all about Trump, we were going to win. Right. So the second term for Joe Biden will be all about Joe. If he chooses not to win, then then Kamala will bear the burden and the credit for whatever they do well. I'm sure there'll be a primary if Biden chooses not to run. And I think if Biden is healthy, he'll run. Your intelligence and the breadth of your career and all the many different areas you know about. I'm sorry that you're not in American political life right now, but you're probably having a great time, right? I'm enjoying myself. If you have to quarantine, Vermont is a good place to do it. The people are great and we're great to each other and it's a real community. 
Howard Dean and I talked in mid-December, but given the unrest before the inauguration, I wanted to call him to get an update. So, of course, what happened recently in the Capitol, what was your first reaction when you saw all that going on? I was pretty much disgust and horror. Um, and actually, my reaction is stronger today than it was when I saw it because of the loss of life. I mean, these people committed murder. These are enemies of the United States. I think the talk of unity from the Republicans is just an attempt to avoid uh, responsibility. I'm all for unifying the country, but contrition is the first act of unity. And so I'd like to see a little less posturing and BS and a little more seriousness about what's good for the country. Otherwise, um, you know, I, I am convinced that we can put down this insurrection if we need to, and I'm hoping it won't come to that. But if it does, that's what we have to do. Do you think that this is just a prelude of more of this to come in state houses and so forth around I the do. country? Here's the only way to get rid of this. Uh, people have said, well, we have to improve the conditions in rural America. That's true. Um, but you can't improve what, what the New York Times ridiculously called racial conservatism. I mean, in other words, racism, which for some reason the New York Times didn't want to put in the paper. This is going to go away with cognitive dissonance. That is, the people who do these things are going to lose their jobs. Uh, if they continue to behave like this, some of them are going to lose their lives because we're not having this again. And this next time it'll be the National Guard is much better trained than the Capitol Police. And eventually this is going to go away. This, this embracement of conspiracy theorists is not because people are stupid or uneducated. It's because they have to rearrange the facts of life because they feel like they're not doing well. OK, we can help them do better. But first, they have to rearrange the facts of life because you can't do well if you have an alternative universe that doesn't match the facts of life. We have more and more people who are saying, I need the government to help me. And now we are trillions of dollars more in debt from writing checks to people to help them survive the COVID. Do you think we get to a point where we can't afford it anymore or we're really going to be in serious economic and financial trouble? Well, we would be in serious or economic financial trouble if we weren't uh, putting out all that money. Right, right. Um, I mean, you know, the unemployment rate among women has gone up 73 percent. And that's shocking. Just shocking. Um, so the, this is a true economic danger. The problem was we had the most incompetent, corrupt president in the history of the United States at the yes. helm when all this happened. Yes. Um, so we can dig our way out of this from an economic point of view. It's going to take some time. I think we can do that. Our economic system is still stronger than anybody else's in the world. Uh, the concern that I have is how do you uh, tamp down this very small minority of crackpots who are willing to do whatever it takes? What's the situation in that regard in Vermont? Um, so far, you know, Vermont's not this kind of a place. This is a real community where we actually care about each other and respect each other. Uh, the Republican governor here called for Trump to leave office after this happened. So, I mean, we're Vermonters first and Republicans and Democrats second. Uh, but the situation is, and but there have always been people like this. I remember when I did civil unions for the first time in the history of the country, gay people could essentially get married. And I had some, some of that. I mean, I had 50-year-old ladies using the F-bomb on me when I was campaigning and stuff. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, that's a minority of people, and they're kept in check because the state doesn't put up with it. We're polite. We don't shame them. We're not confrontational. But they are confining themselves to the edges of society by the entire class, including the Republican Party in Vermont. There are very few people in the Republican Party in Vermont that are actually elected that behave like the majority of elected representatives do at the federal level. Well, in my mind, the COVID and the political upheaval in the country mirror one another. They're problems we've never faced before in this country. We've never, I, I shouldn't say we've never faced this kind of political upheaval before, but, but I think specifically to where we are now, we've never seen a bunch of hoodlums uh, crash the gates of the, and the doors of the, of the Capitol building and vandalize the Capitol building. That's something I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. Uh, but if you're Biden and you're the president now, what's the line you have to walk between demanding law enforcement, demanding people don't do those kinds of things again, but not be perceived as someone who you're ganging up and you're piling up on the extreme right. Okay, so what Biden has to do is speak to the whole country minus the extreme right. You can't reason with these people. They're treasonous. They're really not Americans. Mm -hmm. So that's not our problem. Our problem is the, is the 70 million people that voted for Trump that aren't crazy. Right. Uh, and there's plenty of them. I don't think most Trump supporters think this is okay. 
And so, I mean, the ones in Congress appear to, but that's mostly because they completely lack any intestinal fortitude whatsoever. But I think what Biden needs to do is speak to all of us at the same time, not carry on about law and order, but be really clear that when this kind of stuff happens, the consequences are going to be enormous, enormous. These people are going to get, this is already happening. These people are going to lose their jobs. And if they are willing to put other people's lives at risk, they're likely to lose their own lives. As long as we're speaking to the majority of Americans who are, I think, fundamentally decent people, we can suppress the crazy people who are armed and mean other people harm. And the last thing I want to say is we cannot, what we must not do under any circumstances is concede other people's rights in order to bring order. We are not going backwards on civil rights. We have made huge gains over the summer uh, through the uh, demonstrations of Black Lives Matter. And I think the consciousness in the white community about what the problems are, that's where a lot of this is, is a lot of the white community doesn't want to face what we really need to face in order to try to get rid of some of this injustice. But most people will want to do that. I think most people in their hearts are good people. We have to have a president that's willing to talk to those people and be really tough on the people that want, don't want to play ball. Right. Many, many thanks to you, sir. And thanks for taking my call. My great pleasure. Talk soon. Former Vermont governor and former DNC chair, Howard Dean. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Kathleen Russo and Kerry Donahue. Our editor is Zach McNeese and our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our theme song is by Miles Davis. Hey guys, it's Mike. As you know, I adopted my pup Rocky from a local rescue. Now, when people asked me what kind of dog Rocky was, I was always stumped. I used an Embark Dog DNA test to decode my most puzzling questions about Rocky. You can also learn about your dog's inner secrets with Embark, the highest rated dog DNA test. Unlock over 350 breeds and screen for over 200 genetic health risks. Save $50 on a breed and health kit with promo code KIT at EmbarkVet.com. Again, that's promo code KIT. I'm Tom Colicchio, host of Citizen Chef. You may know me as the judge on Top Chef. You know, last season on Citizen Chef, we dove deep into topics ranging from disaster relief and various injustices inherent in our food system. I hope you're as excited as I am to jump back in. So starting this May, you can tune in to hear from experts on a wide range of issues that you, with your fork and your dollars, have the power to change. Listen to Citizen Chef on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your favorite shows.